0: Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 375 of Forgotten Classics, where we are finishing up The House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Nicholson. I apologize for the delay, and I apologize for the confusion over episode 373 not showing up in iTunes or anywhere. Well, episode 374 did. I've been struggling with this for several days. FeedBurner and I have not agreed on things. And I finally had to erase posts, recreate them. It should be okay now. Anyway, I appreciate the people who cared enough to comment and complain. (laughs) So I knew something was wrong. And I will try to be better about checking all the details on the feeds. Now let's have a bit of a podcast highlight for the times when my feed's not working or when I've delayed too much, which is going to be happening soon because we're finishing this book and I'm going on vacation for a week with my husband. That's a rare occasion and I don't have anything ready to drop automatically. So it's going to be a little bit longer than usual While I do that, and then I will have a new story that I'm going to read, The Three Godfathers. It's a western. (laughs) It doesn't sound like a western. It sounds like a mafia style tale, but it's a western. It's a novella, so I'll be following up with some other little items before we go back into something that I myself am not reading. While I'm doing all that, as I said, back to the podcast highlight. I don't think I've recommended this particular podcast before, which is The Ghost Stories of E. F. Benson, read by Richard Crowist, but I have recommended Richard Crowist's readings before. He has done several of Saki's short story collections, and my goodness, he is a masterful reader who is just a pleasure to listen to. Now, I also enjoy E.F. Benson anyway. If you've not heard of him, he's more famous perhaps these days for the Map and Lucia stories, which is about two ladies who spend all their time either being friends or when they're not being friends, they're trying to stab each other in the back and be the social leaders of their village. They are simply wonderful stories, but they are not out of copyright unfortunately. So in terms of getting them free on a podcast, that's not going to happen. In his own time, E.F. Benson was much better known for his ghost stories. So we're kind of taking a step backwards. And also, you know, October's coming. So you want to get some good ghost stories going. And Benson's stories were, sometimes they were scary. But sometimes they were amusing. Sometimes they were just ironic. He took all kinds of tones with them. And I kind of love them even more for that. You never know what you're going to get. And even the scary ones aren't too scary for me. So they're not that bad, probably, for you. There's one of his stories that you've heard of, even if you didn't know you've heard of it. It is called The Bus Conductor. And this is about a man who keeps being haunted by a hearse. And the line he keeps hearing in every dream he has, in every situation he comes across is, oh, there's just room for one more inside, sir. Room for one more. We've all heard that line, whether in uh, movies, other stories, going off to camp and hearing ghost stories. This is where it came from. There are about 18 stories on the feed and he wrote many more. So I'm hoping that as October and then December, which is a traditional English time for ghost stories to be read, we'll get some more stories read by Richard Crowist. Definitely give them a try. Now back to our story. Everything happened, right? Everything. Hand-to-hand combat, people with guns, people with Choppers. Oh my gosh. I was kind of worried for a little while there, even though there are heroes. It did seem like maybe they were going to go down on this one. And then the surprise, we find out who the ghost is. What? It's the grandfather who wasn't dead at all, but was taking a page out of his nephew's book away on vacation, somewhere exotic. And Marion knew about it, or at least Marion knew about it then. And she was helping him. So, oh my gosh. And Pickering, his infamy, his villainy has been exposed. I love it. This is going to be great. Let's dive in.
1: Chapter 27 Changes and Chances john marshall glenarm had probably never been so happy in his life as on that day of his amazing homecoming he laughed at us and he laughed with us and as he went about the house explaining his plans for its completion he chafed us all with his shrewd humor that had been the terror of my boyhood ah if you had had the plans of course you would have been saved a lot of trouble but that little sketch of the door of bewilderment was the only thing i left and you found it jack you really opened these good books of mine He sent us all away to remove the marks of battle, and we gave Bates a hand in cleaning up the wreckage. Bates the keeper of secrets, Bates the inscrutable and mysterious, Bates the real hero of the affair at Glenarm. He led us through the narrow stairway by which he had entered, which had been built between false walls, and we played ghosts for one another to show just how the tread of a human being around the chimney sounded. There was much to explain and my grandfather's contrition for having placed me in so hazardous a predicament was so sincere and his wish to make amends so evident that my heart warmed to him he made me describe in detail all the incidents of my stay at the house listening with boyish delight to my adventures bless my soul he exclaimed over and over again and as i brought my two friends into the story his delight knew no bounds and he kept chuckling to himself and insisted half a dozen times on shaking hands with Larry and Stoddard, who were, he declared, his friends as well as mine. The prisoner in the potato cellar received our due attention, and my grandfather's joy in the fact that an agent of the British government was held captive in Glenarm House was cheering to see. But the man's detention was a grave matter, as we all realized, and made imperative the immediate consideration of Larry's future. "'I must go, and go at once,' declared Larry." "'Mr. Donovan, I should feel honored to have you remain,' said my grandfather. "'I hope to hold a Jack here, and I wish you would share the house with us.' "'The sheriff and those fellows won't squeal very hard about their performances here,' said Stoddard, "'and they won't try to rescue the prisoner, even for a reward, from a house where the dead come back to life.' "'No, but you can't hold a British prisoner in an American private house for ever. Too many people know he has been in this part of the country, and you may be sure that the fight here and the return of Mr. Glenarm will not fail of large advertisement all i can ask of you mr glenarm is that you hold the fellow a few hours after i leave to give me a start certainly but when this trouble of yours blows over i hope you will come back and help jack to live a decent and orderly life my grandfather spoke of my remaining with a warmth that was grateful to my heart but the place and its associations had grown unbearable i had not mentioned marion devereux to him i had not told him of my christmas flight to cincinnati for the fact that I had run away and forfeited my right made no difference now, and I waited for an opportunity, when we should be alone, to talk of my own affairs. At luncheon, delayed until mid-afternoon, Bates produced champagne, and the three of us, worn with excitement and stress of battle, drank a toast, standing, to the health of John Marshall Glenarm. "'My friends,' the old gentleman rose, and we all stood, our eyes bent upon him in, I think, real affection. "'I am an old and foolish man.' ever since i was able to do so i have indulged my whims this house is one of them i had wished to make it a thing of beauty and dignity and i'd hoped that jack would care for it and be willing to complete it and settle here the means i employed to test him were not i admit worthy of a man who intends well toward his own flesh and blood those african adventures of yours scared me jack but to think and he laughed that i placed you here in this peaceful place amid greater dangers probably than you ever met in tiger hunting But you have put me to shame. Here's health and peace to you. So say we all. So say we all. So say we all, cried the others. One more thing, my grandfather continued. I don't want you to think, Jack, that you would really have been cut off under any circumstances if I had died while I was hiding in Egypt. What I wanted, boy, was to get you home. I made another will in England where I deposited the bulk of my property before I died and did not forget you. That will was to protect you, in case I really died. And he laughed cheerily. The others left us, Stoddard to help Larry get his things together, and my grandfather and I talked for an hour at the table. "'I have thought that many things might happen here,' I said, watching his fine, slim fingers as he polished his eyeglasses, then rested his elbows on the table and smiled at me. "'I thought for a while that I should certainly be shot. Then at times I was afraid I might not be. But your return in the flesh was something I never considered among the possibilities.' bates fooled me that talk i overheard between him and pickering in the church porch that foggy night was the thing that seemed to settle his case then the next thing i knew he was defending the house at the serious risk of his life and i was more puzzled than ever yes a wonderful man bates he always disliked pickering and he rejoiced in tricking him where did you pick bates up he told me he was a yankee but he doesn't act or talk it my grandfather laughed of course not he's an irishman and a man of education "'but that's all I know about him, except that he is a marvellously efficient servant.' My mind was not on Bates. I was thinking now of Marion Devereaux. I could not go on further with my grandfather, without telling him how I had run away and broken faith with him, but he gave me no chance. "'You will stay on here? You will help to finish the house?' he asked, with an unmistakable eagerness of look and tone. It seemed harsh and ungenerous to tell him that I wished to go— that the great world lay beyond the confines of Glenarm for me to conquer, that I had lost as well as gained by those few months at Glenarm House, and wished to go away. It was not the mystery, now fathomed, nor the struggle, now ended, that was the uppermost in my mind and heart, but memories of a girl who had mocked me with delicious girlish laughter, who had led me away that I might see her transformed into another, more charming being. It was a comfort to know that Pickering, trapped and defeated, was not to benefit by the bold trick she had helped him play upon me his loss was hers as well and i was glad in my bitterness that i had found her in the passage seeking for plunder at the behest of the same master whom morgan ferguson and the rest of them served the fight was over and there was nothing more for me to do in the house by the lake after a week or so i should go forth and try to win a place for myself i had my profession i was an engineer and I did not question that I should be able to find employment. As for my grandfather, Bates would care for him, and I should visit him often. I was resolved not to give him any further cause for anxiety on account of my adventurous and roving ways. He knew well enough that his old hope of making an architect of me was lost beyond redemption. I had told him that. And now I wished to depart in peace, and go to some new part of the world, where there were lines to run, tracks to lay, and bridges to build. These thoughts so filled my mind that I forgot he was patiently waiting for my answer. "'I should like to do anything, you ask. I should like to stay here always, but I can't. Don't misunderstand me. I have no intention of going back to my old ways. I squandered enough money in my wanderings, and I had my joy of that kind of thing. I shall find employment somewhere and go to work.' "'But Jack,' he bent toward me kindly, "'Jack, you mustn't be led away by mere coyotism into laying the foundation of your own future.' What I have is yours, boy. What is in the box in the chimney is yours now, today. I wish you wouldn't. You were always too kind, and I deserve nothing, absolutely nothing. I'm not trying to pay you, Jack. I want to ease my own conscience, that's all. But money can do nothing for mine, I replied, trying to smile. I've been dependent all my days, and now I'm going to work. If you were infirm and needed me, I should not hesitate. But the world will have its eyes on me now jack that will of mine did you a great wrong it put a mark upon you and that's what hurts me that's what i want to make amends for don't you see now don't punish me boy come let's be friends he rose and put out his hands i didn't mean that i don't care about that it was nothing more than i deserved these months here have changed me haven't you heard me say i was going to work and i tried to laugh away further the discussion of my future it will be more cheerful here in the spring he said as though seeking an inducement for me to remain when the resort colony down here comes to life the lake is really gay i shook my head the lake that pretty cupful of water the dip and glide of a certain canoe the remembrance of a red tam-o-shanter merging afar off in an october sunset my purpose to leave the place strengthened as i thought of these things my nerves were keyed to a breaking pitch and i turned upon him stormily so miss Devereux was the only other person who shared your confidence "'Do you understand? "'Do you appreciate the fact that she was Pickering's ally?' "'I certainly do not,' he replied coldly. "'I'm surprised to hear you speak so of a woman whom you can scarcely know.' "'Yes, I know her. "'My God, I have reason to know her. "'But even when I found her out, "'I did not dream that the plot was as deep as it is. "'She knew that it was a scheme to test me, "'and she played me into Pickering's hands. "'I saw her only a few nights ago, "'down there in the tunnel, acting as his spy, "'looking for the lost notes,' "'that she might gain grace in his eyes "'by turning them over to him. "'You know, I always hated Pickering. "'He was too smooth, too smug, "'and you and everybody else "'were forever praising him to me. "'He was always held up to me as a model, "'and the first time I saw Marion Devereux, "'she was with him. "'It was at Sherry's, "'the night before I came here. "'I suppose she reached St. Agatha's "'only a few hours ahead of me. "'Yes, Sister Teresa was her guardian. "'Her father was a dear friend.' and I knew her from early childhood. You are mistaken, Jack. Her knowing Pickering means nothing. They both lived in New York and moved in the same circle. But it doesn't explain her efforts to help him, does it? I blazed. He wished to marry her. Sister Teresa told me that, and I failed, I failed miserably, to keep my obligation here. I ran away to follow her. Ah, to be sure, you were away Christmas Eve, when those vandals broke in. Bates merely mentioned it in the last report I got as I came through New York. That was all right. I assumed, of course, that you had gone off somewhere to get a little Christmas cheer. I don't care anything about it. But I had followed her. I went to Cincinnati to see her. She dared me to come. It was a trick, a part of the conspiracy to steal your property. The old gentleman smiled. It was a familiar way of his, to grow calm as other people waxed angry. She dared you to come, did she? That is quite like Marion. But you didn't have to go, did you, Jack? Of course not. "'Of course I didn't have to go, but—' "'I stammered, faltered, and ceased. "'Memory threw open her portals with a challenge. "'I saw her on the stairway at the Armstrongs. "'I heard her low, soft laughter. "'I felt the mockery of her voice and eyes. "'I knew again the exquisite delight of being near her. "'My heart told me well enough why I had followed her. "'Jack, I'm glad I'm not buried up in that Vermont graveyard "'with nobody to exercise the right of guardianship over you.' I've had my misgivings about you, I used to think you were a born tramp, and you disappointed me in turning your back on architecture, the noblest of all professions. But this performance of yours really beats them all. Don't you know that a girl like Marian Devereux isn't likely to become the agent of any rascal? Do you really believe for a minute that she tempted you to follow her so you might forfeit your rights to my property? But why was she trying to find those notes of his? Why did she come back from Cincinnati with his party?' If you could answer me those things, maybe I'd admit that I'm a fool. Pickering, I imagine, is a pretty plausible fellow where women are concerned. For God's sake, Jack, don't speak of that girl as women. I put her in that will of mine to pique your curiosity, knowing that if there was a penalty on your marrying her, you would be wholly likely to do it, for that's the way human beings are made. But you've mixed it all up now and insulted her in the grossest way possible, for a fellow who is really a gentleman. And I don't want to lose you." "'I want you here with me, Jack. "'This is beautiful country, this Indiana, "'and what I want to do is to found an estate, "'to build a house that shall be really beautiful, "'something these people hereabouts can be proud of, "'and I want you to have it with me, Jack, "'to link our name to these woods and that pretty lake. "'I'd rather have that for my neighbor than any lake in Scotland. "'These rich Americans who go to England to live "'don't appreciate the beauty of their own country. "'This landscape is worthy of the best that man can do.' and I didn't undertake to build a crazy house, so much as one that should have some dignity and character. That passage around the chimney is an indulgence, Jack. I'll admit it's a little bizarre. You see, that chimney isn't so big outside as it is in.' And he laughed and rubbed his knees with the palms of his hands. "'And my bringing foreign laborers here wasn't really to make it easier to get things done my way. Wait till you have seen the Mayapples blossom, and hear the robins sing in the summer twilight. Help me to finish the house.' then if you want to leave i'll bid you godspeed the feeling in his tone the display of sentiment so at variance with my old notion of him touched me in spite of myself there was a characteristic nobility and dignity in his plan it was worthy of him and i had never loved him as now when he finished this appeal and turned away to the window gazing out upon the sombre woodland mr donovan is ready to go sir announced bates at the door and we went into the library where larry and stoddard were waiting chapter twenty eight shorter vistas larry had assembled his effects in the library and to my surprise stoddard appeared with his own handbag i'm going to see donovan well on his way said the clergyman it's a pity our party must break up exclaimed my grandfather my obligations to mr donovan are very great and to you too stoddard jack's friends are mine hereafter and when we get new doors for glenarm house you shall honour me by accepting duplicate keys.' "'Where's Bates?' asked Larry, and the man came in respectfully, imperturbably, as always, and began gathering up the bags. "'Stop one moment. Mr. Glenarm,' said Larry, "'before I go I want to congratulate you on the splendid courage of this man, who has served you and your house with so much faithfulness and tact, and I want to tell you something else, that you probably would never learn from him.' "'Donovan!' There was a sharp cry in Bates's voice, and he sprang forward with his hands outstretched entreatingly, but Larry did not heed him. "'The moment I set eyes on this man, I recognized him. It's not fair to you or to him that you should not know him for what he is. Let me introduce an old friend, Walter Creighton. He was a student at Dublin when I was there. I remember him as one of the best fellows in the world.' "'For God's sake, no,' pleaded Bates. He was deeply moved and turned his face away from us but like me larry went on he mixed in politics one night in a riot at dublin a constable was killed no one knew who was guilty but a youngster was suspected the son of one of the richest and best-known men in ireland who happened to get mixed in the row to draw attention from the boy creighton let suspicion attach to his own name and to help the boy's case farther ran away i had not heard from or of him until the night i came here and found him the defender of this house by god That was no servant's trick. It was the act of a royal gentleman. They clasped hands, and with a new light in his face, with a new manner, as though he resumed as a familiar garment an old disused personality, Bates stood transfigured in the twilight, a man and a gentleman. I think we were all drawn to him. I know that a sob clutched my throat, and tears filled my eyes as I grasped his hand. But what in the devil did you do it for? blurted my grandfather, excitedly twirling his glasses. Bates—I still call him Bates, he insists on it, laughed. For the first time he thrust his hands into his pockets, and stood at his ease. One of us. "'Larry, you remember I showed a fondness for the stage in our university days? When I got to America I had a little money, and found it necessary to find employment without delay. I saw Mr. Glenarm's advertisement for a valet. Just as a lark, I answered it, to see what an American gentleman seeking a valet looked like.' I fell in love with Mr. Glenarm at sight. It was mutual, declared my grandfather. I never believed your story at all. You were too perfect in the part. Well, I didn't greatly mind the valet business. It helped to hide my identity, and I did like the humor and whims of Mr. Glenarm. The housekeeping after we came out here wasn't so pleasant. He looked at his hands ruefully. But this joke of Mr. Glenarm's making a will and then going to Egypt to see what would happen—that was too good to miss. And when the heir arrived. I found new opportunities of practising amateur theatricals, and Pickering's efforts to enlist me in his scheme for finding the money and making me rich gave me still greater opportunities. There were times when I was strongly tempted to blurt the whole thing. I got tired of being suspected, and of playing ghost in the wall, and if Mr. Glenarm hadn't got here just as he did, I should have stopped the fight and proclaimed the truth. "'I hope,' he said, turning to me, "'you have no hard feelings, sir.' And he threw into the sir— "'just a touch of irony that made us all roar. "'I'm certainly glad I'm not dead,' declared my grandfather, staring at Bates. "'Life is more fun than I ever thought possible. "'Bless my soul,' he said, "'if it isn't a shame that Bates can never cook another omelette for me.' "'We sent Bates back with my grandfather from the boathouse, "'and Stoddard, Larry, and I started across the ice. "'The light coating of snow made walking comparatively easy. "'We strode on silently, Stoddard leading.' their plan was to take an accommodation train at the first station beyond annandale leave it at a town forty miles away and then hurry east to an obscure place in the mountains of virginia where a religious order maintained a house there stoddard promised larry asylum and no questions asked we left the lake and struck inland over a rough country road to the station where stoddard purchased tickets only a few minutes before the train whistled we stood on the lonely platform hands joined to hands and I know not what thoughts in our minds and hearts. "'We've met and we've said good-bye, in many odd corners of this strange old world,' said Larry, "'and God knows when we shall meet again. But you must stay in America. There must be no sea between us,' I declared. "'Donovan's sins don't seem heinous to me. It's simply that they've got to find a scapegoat.' And Stoddard's voice was all sympathy and kindness. "'It will blow over in time, and Donovan will be an enlightened and peaceable American citizen.' There was a constraint upon us all at this moment of parting. So many things had happened that day, and when men have shared danger together, they are bound by ties that death only can break. Larry's effort at cheer struck a little hollowly upon us. "'Beware, lad, of women,' he importuned me. "'Humph! You still despise the sex on account of that affair with the colleen of the short upper lip. Verily! And the eyes of that little lady who guided your grandfather back from the other world—' Reminded me strongly of her. Bah, these women. Precious little you know about them, I retorted. The devil, I don't. No, said Stoddard. Invoke the angels, not the devil. Hear him, hear him. A priest with no knowledge of the world. Alas, my cloth. And you fling it at me after I have gone through battle, murder, and sudden death with you gentlemen. We thank you, sir, for that last word, said Larry mockingly i am reminded of the late lord alfred i waited for the train at coventry i hung with grooms and porters on the bridge to watch the three tall spires. he quoted looking off through the twilight toward st agatha's i can see a blooming spire the train was now roaring down upon us and we clung to this light mood for our last words between men gratitude is a thing best understood in silence and these good friends i knew felt what i could not say before the year is out we shall all meet again cried Stoddard hopefully seizing the bags ah if we could only be sure of that i replied and in a moment they were both waving their hands to me from the rear platform and i strode back homeward over the lake a mood of depression was upon me i had lost much that day and what i had gained my restoration to the regard of the kindly old man of my own blood who had appealed for my companionship in terms hard to deny seemed trifling as I tramped over the ice. Perhaps Pickering, after all, was the real gainer by the day's event. My grandfather had said nothing to allay my doubts as to Marion Devereaux's strange conduct, and yet his confidence in her was apparently unshaken. I tramped on, and leaving the lake, half unconsciously struck into the wood beyond the dividing wall, where snow-covered leaves and twigs rattled and broke under my tread. I came out into an open space beyond St. Agatha's, found the walk and turned toward home as i neared the main entrance to the school the door opened and a woman came out under the overhanging lamp she carried a lantern and turned with a hand outstretched to some one who followed her with careful steps ah marion cried my grandfather it's ever the task of youth to light the way of age chapter twenty nine and so the light led me he had been to see sister teresa and Marian was walking him to the gate. I saw her quite plainly in the light that fell from the lamp overhead. A long cloak covered her, and a fur toque capped her graceful head. My grandfather and his guide were apparently in high spirits. Their laughter smote harshly upon me. It seemed to shut me out, to lift a barrier against me. The world lay there within the radius of that swaying light, and I hung aloof, hearing her voice, and jealous of the very companionship and sympathy between them but the light led me i remembered with bitterness that i had always followed her whether as olivia trailing in her girlish race across the snow or as the girl in gray whom i had followed wondering on that night journey at christmas eve and i followed now the distrust my shattered faith my utter loneliness could not weigh against the joy of hearing that laugh of hers breaking mellowly on the night i paused to allow the two figures to widen the distance between us As they traversed the path that curved away toward the chapel i could still hear their voices and see the lantern flash and disappear i felt an impulse to turn back or plunge into the woodland but i was carried on uncontrollably the light glimmered and her voice still floated back to me it stole through the keen winter dark like a memory of spring and so her voice and the light led me then i heard an exclamation of dismay followed by laughter in which my grandfather joined merrily oh never mind we're not afraid she exclaimed i had rounded the curve in the path where i should have seen the light but the darkness was unbroken there was silence for a moment in which i drew quite near to them then my grandfather's voice broke out cheerily now i must go back with you a fine person you are to guide an old man a foolish virgin indeed with no oil in her lamp please do not of course i'm going to see you quite to your own door i don't intend to put my hand to the lantern and then turn back "'This walk isn't what it should be,' said my grandfather. "'We'll have to provide something better in the spring.' They were still silent, and I heard him futilely striking a match. Then the lantern fell, its wires rattling as it struck the ground, and the two exclaimed with renewed merriment upon their misfortune. "'If you will allow me,' I called out, my hand fumbling in my pocket for my own match-box. I have sometimes thought that there is really some sort of decent courtesy in me, an old man caught in a rough path, that was none too good at best and a girl even though my enemy these were i fancy the thoughts that crossed my mind ah it's jack exclaimed my grandfather marian was showing me the way to the gate and our light went out miss devereux i murmured i have i hope an icy tone for persons who have incurred my displeasure and i employed it then and there with no doubt its fullest value she and my grandfather were groping in the dark for the lost lantern and i putting out my hand touched her fingers i beg your pardon she murmured frostily then i found and grasped the lantern one moment i said and i'll see what's the trouble i thought my grandfather took it but the flame of my wax match showed her fingers clasping the wires of the lantern the cloak slipped away showing her arm's soft curve the blue and white of her bodice the purple blur of violets and for a second i saw her face with a smile quivering about her lips My grandfather was beating impatiently with his stick, urging us to leave the lantern and go on. "'Let it alone,' he said. "'I'll go down through the chapel. There's a lantern in there somewhere.' "'I'm awfully sorry,' she remarked. "'But I recently lost my best lantern.' To be sure she had. I was angry that she should so brazenly recall the night I found her looking for Pickering's notes in the passage at the door of bewilderment she had lifted the lantern now and i was striving to touch the wax taper to the wick with imminent danger to my bare fingers they don't really light well when the oil's out she observed with an exasperating air of wisdom i took it from her hand and shook it close to my ear yes of course it's empty i muttered disdainfully oh mr glenarm she cried turning away toward my grandfather i heard his stick beating the rough path several yards away He was hastening toward Glenarm House. "'I think Mr. Glenarm has gone home.' "'Oh, that is too bad!' she exclaimed. "'Thank you. He's probably at the chapel by this time. If you will permit me.' "'Not at all.' A man well advanced in his sixties should not tax his arteries too severely. I was quite sure that my grandfather ran up the chapel steps. I could hear his stick beating hurriedly on the stone. "'If you wish to go farther,' I began. I was indignant at my grandfather's conduct— he had deliberately run off leaving me alone with a young woman who i particularly wished to avoid thank you i shall go back now i was merely walking to the gate with mr glenarm it is so fine to have him back again so unbelievable it was just such a polite murmur as one might employ in speaking to an old foe at a friend's table she listened a moment for his step then apparently satisfied turned back toward st agatha's i followed uncertain hesitating marking her definite onward flight. From the folds of the cloak stole that faint perfume of violets. The sight of her, the sound of her voice, combined to create and to destroy a mood with every step. I was seeking some colorless thing to say when she spoke over her shoulder. "'You are very kind, but I am not in the least afraid, Mr. Glenarm.' "'But there is something I wish to say to you. I should like—' She slackened her step. "'Yes?' "'I am going away.' Yes, of course you are going away. Her tone implied that this was something that had been ordained from the beginning of time and did not matter. And I wish to say a word about Mr. Pickering. She paused and faced me abruptly. We were at the edge of the wood, and the school lay quite near. She caught the cloak closer about her and gave her head a little toss I remembered well, as a trick compelled by the vagaries of a woman's headdress. I can't talk to you here, Mr. Glenarm. I had no intention of ever seeing you again but I must say this. Those notes of Pickering's. I shall ask Mr. Glenarm to give them to you, as a mark of esteem from me. She stepped backward as though I had struck her. You risked much for them. For him, I went on. Mr. Glenarm, I have no intention of discussing that or any other matter with you. It is better so. But your accusations, the things you imply, are unjust, infamous the quaver in her voice shook my resolution to deal harshly with her if i had not myself been a witness i began yes you have the conceit of your own wisdom i dare say but that challenge to follow you to break my pledge my running away only to find that pickering was close at my heels your visit to the tunnel in search of those notes don't you know that those things were a blow that hurt you had been the spirit of this woodland to me through all these months from the hour i watched you paddle off into the sunset in your canoe the thought of you made the days brighter, steadied and cheered me, and wakened ambitions that I had forgotten, abandoned, long ago. And this hideous struggle here, it seems so idle, so worse than useless now. But I'm glad I followed you. I'm glad that neither fortune nor duty kept me back. And now I want you to know that Arthur Pickering shall not suffer for anything that has happened. I shall make no effort to punish him. For your sake he shall go free. A sigh so deep that it was like a sob broke from her. She thrust forth her hand, entreatingly. "'Why don't you go to him with your generosity? You are so ready to believe ill of me, and I shall not defend myself. But I will say these things to you, Mr. Glenarm. I had no idea, no thought of seeing him at the Armstrongs that night. It was a surprise to me, and to them, when he telegraphed he was coming. And when I went into the tunnel there, under the wall that night, I had a purpose. A purpose? Yes?' she paused and i bent forward earnestly waiting for her words knowing that here lay her great offending i was afraid i was afraid that mr Glenarm might not come in time that you might be dispossessed lose the fight and i came back with mr pickering because i thought some dreadful thing might happen here to you she turned and ran from me with the speed of the wind the cloak fluttering out darkly about her at the door under the light of the lamp i was close upon her Her hand was on the vestibule latch. "'But how should I have known?' I cried. "'And you had taunted me with my imprisonment at Glenarm. You had dared me to follow you, when you knew that my grandfather was living and watching to see whether I kept faith with him. If you can tell me, if there is an answer to that—' "'I shall never tell you anything more. You were so eager to think ill of me, to accuse me. It was because I love you. It was my jealousy of that man, my boyhood enemy, that made me catch at any doubt.' you are so beautiful you are so much a part of the peace the charm of all this i had hoped for spring for you and the spring together oh please her flight had shaken the toque to an unwonted angle her breath came quick and hard as she tugged at the latch eagerly the light from overhead was full upon us but i could not go with hope and belief struggling unsatisfied in my heart i seized her hands and sought to look into her eyes But you challenged me to follow you. I want to know why you did that. She drew away, struggling to free herself. Why was it, Marion? Because I wanted... Yes? I wanted you to come, Squire Glenarm. Thrice spring has wakened the sap in the Glenarm wood since that night. Yesterday I tore March from the calendar. April in Indiana. She is an impudent tomboy who whistles at the window points to the sunshine, and, when you go hopefully forth, summons the clouds and pelt you with snow. The austere old woodland, wise from long acquaintance, finds no joy in her. The walnut and the hickory have a higher respect for the stormier qualities of December, April in Indiana. She was just there by the wall, where now the bluebird pauses dismayed, and waits again the flash of her golden sandals. She bent there at the lakeside the splash of a raindrop ago, and tentatively poked the thin, brittle ice with the pink tips of her little fingers. April in the heart. It brings back the sweet wonder and awe of those days, three years ago, when Marion and I, waiting for June to come, knew a joy that thrilled our hearts like the tumult of the first Robin's song. The marvel of it all steals over me again, as I hear the riot of melody in the meadow and wood, and catch through the window the flash of eager wings." My history of the affair at Glenarm has overrun the bounds I had set for it, and these, I submit, are not days for the desk and pen. Marion is turning over the sheets of manuscript that lie at my left elbow, and demanding that I drop work for a walk abroad. My grandfather is pacing the terrace outside, planning, no doubt, those changes in the grounds that are his constant delight. Of some of the persons concerned in this winter's tale, let me say a word more. THE PRISONER WHOM LARRY LEFT BEHIND WE DISCHARGED, AFTER SEVERAL DAYS, WITH ALL THE HONORS OF WAR, AND, I MAY ADD WITHOUT BREACH OF CONFIDENCE, A COMFORTABLE INDEMNITY. LARRY HAS MADE A REPUTATION BY HIS BOOK ON RUSSIA, A SEARCHING STUDY INTO THE CONDITIONS OF THE TSAR'S EMPIRE, AND HAVING SQUEEZED THAT LEMON, HE IS NOW IN TIBET. HIS FATHER HAS SECURED FROM THE BRITISH GOVERNMENT A PROMISE OF IMMUNITY FOR LARRY, SO LONG AS THE amiable ADVENTURER KEEPS AWAY FROM Ireland. My friend's latest letters to me contain, I note, no reference to the sod. Bates is in California, conducting a fruit ranch, and when he visited us last Christmas he bore all the marks of a gentleman whom the world uses well. Stoddard's life has known many changes in these years, but they must wait for another day, and perhaps another historian. Suffice it to say that it was he who married us, Marion and me, in the little chapel by the wall, and that when he comes now and then to visit us WE RENEW OUR IMPRESSION OF HIM AS A MAN LARGE OF BODY AND OF SOUL. SISTER TERESA CONTINUES AT THE HEAD OF ST. AGATHA'S, AND SHE AND THE OTHER SISTERS OF HER BROWN-CLAD COMPANY ARE DELIGHTFUL NEIGHBORS. PICKERING'S FAILURE AND SUBSEQUENT DISAPPEARANCE WERE DESCRIBED SUFFICIENTLY IN THE NEWSPAPERS, AND HIS NAME IS NEVER MENTIONED AT GLENARM. AS FOR MYSELF, MARION IS TAPPING THE FLOOR RESTLESSLY WITH HER BOOT, AND I MUST HASTEN. I MAY SAY THAT I AM NO IDLER it was I who carried on the work of finishing Glenarm House, and I managed the farms which my grandfather has lately acquired in this neighborhood. But better still, from my own point of view, I maintain in Chicago an office as consulting engineer, and I have already had several important commissions. Glenarm House is now what my grandfather had wished to make it, a beautiful and dignified mansion. He insisted on filling up the tunnel, so that the door of bewilderment is no more." the passage in the wall, and the strong-box in the paneling of the chimney-breast remain, though the latter we use now as a hiding-place for certain prize-bottles of rare whiskey, which John Marshall Glenarm ordains shall be taken down only on Christmas Eve's, to drink the health of Olivia Gladys Armstrong. That young woman, I may add, is now a belle in her own city, and of the scores of youngsters all the way from Pittsburgh to New Orleans who lay siege to her heart, my word is, may the best man win." and now, at the end, it may seem idle vanity for a man still young to write at so great length of his own affairs, but it must have been clear that mine is the humblest figure in this narrative. I wish to set forth an honest account of my grandfather's experiment into looking into this world from another, and he has himself urged me to write down these various incidents while they are still fresh in my memory. Marion, the most patient of women, is walking toward the door, eager for the sunshine, the free airs of spring, the blue vistas lakeward, and, at last, I am ready to go. End of The House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Nicholson